everybody, and welcome back to the Garage Gym PT Podcast. Sitting with you again is Lou and Dave. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Hope you guys are liking it so far. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun with this. This is uh, episode number five. Uh, today, what Dave and I are going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about two more uh, aspects of strength and conditioning. We're going to talk about the principle of uh, individuality and then also the principle of specificity. Um, so to kind of lead it off, uh, talking about individuality first, um, you can look at this, um, you know, everyone's different. So like no two people are going to respond to the same type of training program. Um, so for example, if I were to take, let's say an 11 year old and I was going to take a 28 year old, there's going to be some drastic differences there, right? Um, you're going to have, first of all, just the biological age, how old they both are. Uh, we're going to look at training age, uh, you can look at, you know, are they, you know, gender wise, as well as body type, body size, shape, um, maybe what they've had injury wise, or maybe even fear wise, you never know from experience. Um, so going into the principle of specificity, you know, looking at that a little bit more, um, you're going to look at training adaptations and uh, how it's going to specifically occur within muscle groups trained, intensity exercise. Um, the different types of metabolic demands of the exercise, and then also the specific movement patterns of the activities. Um, how do I put it? With someone, I feel like with a low training age, but when you get more into the aspect of like a higher training age, you can get more in depth with that. And we'll, we'll cover that here in a little bit. Um, so kind of leading it off, let's circle back and go back to the principle of individuality. Dave, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, so the two are somewhat married together, uh, just as Lewis was alluding to. This is almost like viewed as like a pyramid up. So if you take that 11-year-old or the person that has a very low physiological training age, you have multiple buckets that you can actually kind of go into and get a desired effect. Whereas when you get somebody who may be borderline professional athletes, uh, high-end crossfitter, high-end powerlifter, you need to go up this pyramid and kind of pigeonhole and make it more specific. Um, so somebody who is trying to recover and like, let's say it's a super specific problem. I put 225 pounds on my back. I have back or knee pain. So that looks very much different from I'm an 11 year old experiencing patellofemoral pain or Osgood slaughter. And uh, we, we can kind of go into these two examples and just kind of like break it down. Mm-hmm. So the, the person who's 11, right, they, they likely have zero exposure to anything strength-related unless they have some parent that's conscious of this, <clears throat> which means for us, we can darn near do whatever we want. And as long as we get the quad stronger, the pain's likely going to reduce. So you can pick any amount of exercises and they will be effective simply because they don't have exposure to a program, right? Whereas when you go to this person who they have X amount of load that they can tolerate, this now becomes a much more in-depth thought process, i.e. does the biomechanics break down? What does your training look like for the past two to three months? Have you taken a deload? What's the bar position? Is there a weight shift? So there, there's 
a numerate of different reasons as to why this person could have some type of a breakdown. But you do have to dig into it specifically, meaning in this uh, example, the squat is the piece of specificity. Um, whereas the 11 year old, it's super broad. Like it's just a general knee pain that might look like it hurts when I go down steps. I'm afraid to bend my knees. Running and jumping in my sporting activity doesn't look quite as fun as I want it to. I have achy pain at night. So there's this cluster of symptoms rather than one finite aggravating factor. Mm -hmm. I think one aspect with uh, individuality kind of building off that Dave, um, you know, it was a great lower body example. Let's go into more of like an upper body example. Um, let's take a CrossFitter and like pull-ups, right? Um, I've had a lot of patients over the last, you know, let's say three, four months who have been developing shoulder pain with, with vertical pulling. Um, and a lot of them are very new to the CrossFit scene. So like, not to say that they're, you know, they've, they've done fitness in the past, but I think sometimes when you are new to say a KIP, um, that can be, there, there's a big learning curve there uh, where you're not going to just have that right out of the gate. So regressing back and kind of learning movements based off, you know, you could say your training age might be there, uh, but let's go more into like the specificity of a pull-up, all right? So if you've never had to add in that that kipping aspect to it all, uh, your entire movement pattern is not drastically changed when you incorporate the kip, correct? It, it very much can be. Um, mm -hmm. And even to talk about that, so like let's let's even maybe go broad to specific. Mm -hmm. So, do they have any type of a <laughs> upper body stimulus that they've experienced in the past? So we can probably like pick out this example, this person in the gym who they have never stepped foot in the gym. And all of a sudden they're trying to do bar work. Whereas somebody who may come from like a background such as bodybuilding, they have a large experience of doing lat pull downs, assisted pull-ups, eccentric pull-ups. They have the lat development. They know how to pull from their, quote unquote, elbows and shoulder and not their, their biceps and forearms. Mm -hmm. Right. So then just as you're alluding to, maybe you make this more specific, right? So mm -hmm. that can happen for a number of reasons, right? One, we're talking about like muscle recruitment, but assuming it's not that, do they even know how to do like a proper hollow arch? Do they know how to do like an energy transfer from their feet through their hips? to then deload the shoulder. So, yeah, I mean, like, I guess kind of give, give a couple examples of like why this looks and like what the, this person's movement pattern looks like. So like, for example, when this person in particular goes back into their kip, they have kind of a poor reverse hollow position, right? So they don't necessarily come all the way through extension through the lat or like, ex like basically over lengthening in the lat. And so you see like a break in the lumbar area. And so then when they kind of go from the reverse hollow back into the hollow position, 
they kind of get more of like a leg whip as opposed to an actual core crunch into the hollow. And then they don't get any. Are they doing like the butterfly or are they doing? No, just a kip. Okay. No, no butterfly, just a kip. So they're they're not into the butterfly just yet. And so what happens is that as they kind of go, they almost pull prematurely. So they're not even really fully back into the hollow position. They're almost more vertical. And so then they try to initiate that pull. And as soon as they do it, like immediate shoulder pain. So one of the things that we've been trying to do is like, you know, addressing the movement pattern first before they've even initiated any kind of a pull. So learning how to go back and forth, you know, when you're trying to learn a new movement pattern, you, you really don't have a large training age that can take time. And one of the things that I think people, well, not really just CrossFitters, but people in general, just impatient, right? So they want to get back into the fun stuff. They want to be able to do what everyone else is doing. They feel like if for some reason they can't do that, they're lacking or lesser for some reason and they're not. Um, right. What, what's that famous quote? Don't people tend to overestimate what they can do in a month and underestimate what they can do in a year. Yeah, exactly. Like a, like a perfect example of this. Yeah. Um, so, it, and even like to go further into that, right? Like, obviously this is a hypothetical example, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I'm willing to bet that they don't really have too good of a, a extension of thoracic spine either. I imagine that this person is also rounded with shoulders uh, that are going to be advantageous to create this impingement type of symptom. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're, they're still very, very basic low-hanging fruit up at like that individuality, low training age, low exposure to where they're trying to jump to step, I don't know, five to seven and throw in a kipping pull-up when they may not even know how to do basic stuff such as like face pulls, pull-aparts, uh, ring rows, stuff that's really mm-hmm. going to like help with your uh, g- general posture with pulling, mm-hmm. right? So like even when you like think about like where is an advantageous place for me to push or pull from, typically it's, uh, you know, shoulder blades are down and back, retracted and externally rotated. And if you're in this position, there's very little chance that you catch any portion of your shoulder in some form of impingement. So one, they could have like disjointed mechanics, but it sounds like their energy transfer is lacking for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Two, they could have some mobility restrictions. Uh, And three, they they could just be recruiting, you know, uh, upper trap rather than bracing and actually giving themselves a chance to get into the proper posture to make this more efficient. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of reasons. Um, yeah, so that's why like in terms of, and I, and I told them like one of the ways that we can kind of move forward is actually to move back. And yeah. so what we've done is we've kind of taken the pull up and we've, we've kind of taken it off the table for right now. And so like we've gone back to a lesser intense movement, but we've been working on those things you were just discussing. So like we've been working on thoracic extension. We've been working on learning how to actually recruit like the scapular girdle in a better way, pulling into the retraction, maintaining that over longer periods of time. The other thing we've been working on is just bar hangs. Like their grip is actually not all that great. So we've been putting them through that period of 
you can barely hang on to the bar, but yet you're trying to throw your body weight around it. Right. Yeah. So like we've kind of taken those, we've almost broke it. Like, um, they were seeing like the, the foods that they do where it's like a, a deconstructed cheesecake or whatever. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like we've deconstructed the pull up and put it into the simple parts and now they can do those and build up those parts to then build it into a whole. Um, yeah. Why don't we take this and even like, where, where would you want to start on like a pull up and like, what would be a progression for that? All right. So specifically, how would you have somebody do this from a mm-hmm. start? Um, like, I think, I think one, we, we definitely want to have strict pull-ups before we ever even talk about adding in plyometric or uncontrolled deceleration. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to build to the strict pull-up? Yeah. So I think one, if, I mean, it's going to depend on the person. Everyone's going to be a little different for this. Um, let's say general Joe Schmo, they have a little bit of a training experience, um, if, if pull-ups are just not in the cards, I mean, you could break it back down. You could do like a band-assisted pull-up if you really would need to. Uh, you could also incorporate ring rows and make the ring row more and more difficult. Uh, and then you could also take them from more of like, how do I put it? Uh, I actually like to use the ring sometimes too for the pull-up because it just a little bit more freely moving in the hands as opposed to a fixed bar. And so what I'll do is I'll take them from more of like a horizontal pull and I will gradually progress them to more of a vertical position, but hanging more and more off the ring. Um, that's one way. That way they can kind of build into the the, the vertical position. Because uh, horizontal is significant. In, in my opinion, horizontal pulling is a lot easier. Um, but I mean, everyone's a little different. You, like Alex Trotter, for example. The guy can do horizontal, like um, like supine rows, like nobody's business. You ask him to do a vertical pull-up, it's going to be fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like breaking it down that way, um, then once they have that strict pull up, you know, we'll, we'll work on just kind of maintaining uh, a bar hang and kind of engaging and maybe doing like a scapular pull up. Uh, once they can maintain that over a period of time and they can, I, I want to say like at least a minute because you can knock out a few repetitions in a, in a minute. Um, but if you can hang on to that bar for a solid minute, we'll start progressing from scap pull up to maybe a band-assisted scap pull-up into a pull-up. And then after that, reducing band tension, taking the band away, trying to work on scap pull-up into a pull. Um, Whether or not that's a full pull-up, that's a half pull-up, it'll depend. Um, Then once they have the full pull-up, we'll start building, you know, integrity with that, making it sets and reps elevate as we go. Um, And then kind of building off that, eventually once they have that strict pull, I'd say at least at least body weight for maybe either three sets of like five to six or two sets of like 10 to 12. Uh, Once they have that down, I'll start teaching them how to kip, but it's not going to be like fast kipping. I will teach them how to hold a reverse hollow and then move into the hollow position while hanging off of the bar. Then we just build intensity. I I have noted um, it's very hard to make that transition from banded to non-banded. And like one, one place where people miss the boat in that in particular is, you know, you can get your volume in with that type of plane of pulling with heavy band tension, or you can do pull downs, but you have to have the stimulus of your body weight, meaning you have to do an eccentric 
in mm-hmm. order to actually reverse yourself back up, right? So you have to be able yep. to control your body weight on the way down. As a principle, you can always accept more in the eccentric than you can in the concentric, right? Yeah. So easy example, that's just a bench press. We can all lower the bar, but we're not going to be able to press it up off of ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Depending on the weight. So yeah, um, I would probably structure my my program doing either like the scat pull-ups, assuming it's pain-free, mm-hmm. or a version of eccentrics first to try to get the heaviest stimulus, mm-hmm. then progress with some sort of vertical pulling volume with a band or with a lat pull-down. And then from yeah. there, I'm probably going to do a ton of horizontal pulling and address obvious like strength weaknesses that show up on MMT. So mm-hmm. um, meaning manual muscle testing. And the vast majority of the time, the, the low-hanging fruit here is terrible external rotation strength, terrible horizontal uh, abduction that gets worse with recruitment of external rotation, i.e. what you probably are doing when you're pushing overhead or grabbing onto the bar. Um, but yeah, so in that type of a layout, you pick the thing that's most limiting first as a specific thing you want to work on, meaning the pull-up, and then increase your volume in the other things that this individual person is showing obvious signs and symptoms of weakness for. Mm-hmm. Even like as a way to like backdoor grip, I really like having people do really, really heavy farmer carries and make sure that they're stacking their shoulder girdle. Um, and it like kind of secondarily causes like an isometric contraction from the rotator cuff that's required for pretty much everything upper body. Yeah. Have you ever used the rice buckets before? I haven't in a while. It's more of like <laughs> the baseball thing back in the day. Yeah. I was curious to see if you did that. I've actually started getting those out a lot more um, just for just building like overall tolerance to either repeated gripping or uh, just sustaining grip. Um, yeah, we don't have those, but instead I'll, I'll use like fat grips and then I'll put like bands mm-hmm. and then I'll, like, I'll have them do a farmer carry where they have like oscillating uh, kettlebells. So that way they kind of get that uh, overload as they're walking. Makes sense. So like, I feel like another example we could kind of bring up here would be, um, let's use the snatch as an example. Um, So kind of going into, if you do not have a very large training age, learning the snatch can be a daunting task, right? Uh, taking a bar from the floor, catching it overhead. Um, watched, watched quite a few people catch that bar on top of their head. Um, so how would you go about progressing someone, uh, let's say no shoulder pain, none at all. Uh, how would you go about like progression-wise for the snatch? Damn, this is a, this is a broad one. So <laughs> number one, do you have a good squat so if you can't squat with stability you know your your layers 
of stability tends to go down as you get the bar. So back squat might be most stable, like right low bar, then high bar. Mm -hmm. Then it goes safety squat bar. Then front squat moves your uh, center of mass forward, which requires even more stability. Then it's an overhead squat. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably going to try to pick, well, can you front squat? as like the first, so can you get down to the ground, have an upright torso. That kind of mimics the position, right? So assuming that that's okay, then their overhead squat's probably not the best. So doing something where you're trying to do bamboo bar holds on like a box and then possibly having them move from the box up and down to depth to develop that overhead stability like as they're doing it, is probably one of the more crucial pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and even within that, do you have good tolerance to a barbell overhead? Like it's fixed, like you, you need to build up that position and make sure that things are stacking appropriately. Right, so like, and then, then from there, um, so you have a good squat, you have good acceptance of overhead position. You can actually perform the overhead squat with good execution. Um, maybe we move to doing things such as pauses, right? So looking at like, is one of the pulls a problem? Is it the catch? So which sequence of this actually is the most limiting and then throwing a pause so they have more time under tension in the position that's most limiting to them mm -hmm. right so you know in the back pain scenario we're probably doing pauses or slow pulls to the knee before explosion if your second pull is a problem and you have trouble making hip contact you're probably going to be doing a bunch of stuff from the hang or blocks and if you have trouble with overhead stability you're probably going to be doing a ton of overhead squatting, pausing the catch, overhead walks, uh, et cetera. So again, kind of driving that broad to specific thing, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a bunch of like links in the chain that can be broken down. Uh, so obviously this needs to be very individual for that person. Mm-hmm. So then let's, I'm curious, let's go down this rabbit hole a little bit. So two, three rep, as opposed to cycling breakdown. Um, so like, for example, I've had a few patients over the last two years, really, who um, on one, two, three reps look absolutely gorgeous. But then when they have to go through cycling, say 135, uh, 185, and even like 75 to 95 pounds, um, those first two or three are great. But then after that, as they continue to move beyond that point, um, the form just goes to absolute crap. Uh, so what would you do with regard to uh, modification of, of a training program for someone who starts to develop pain through or beyond those first three to five repetitions, but as they continue to go on, the pain becomes worse? Is it shoulder or is it back? Shoulder or is pain. It... Shoulder pain. Okay. 
Um, in this scenario, I'm probably trying to accumulate as much volume overhead pain free that we can get. This person probably also has bad pulling. They probably have bad external rotation strength. Um, so they're going to get a ton of bamboo bar work. Mm -hmm. uh, probably supersetted with something such as like taffy pulls, external rotation. Um, you know, even like doing like a press through a uh, foam roller with like a uh, band around. So they're going to get a ton of overhead stuff with emphasis on external rotation. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you also do something like a high rep, like demo deadlift that's double overhand so that it mimics mm -hmm. the hang and like you actually go like down past your knee. Um, Cause maybe their scaps are getting out of control, like within that second pool. And then they're, they're losing upper back and lat strength too. Um, And there, are, there also can be like weight modification, but teaching mm -hmm. somebody to keep that time under tension is a huge bonus to them, right? So, you know, cycling 95 pound snatches versus 135 is a very, very different stimulus. Mm -hmm. So like getting them time under tension with heavier loads in a specific RDL or dimble deadlift scenario can be something like where they keep their upper back in better position, right? So maybe this person looks like they are catching progressively more forward and forward and forward and forward. This to me would indicate your upper back's probably breaking down mm -hmm. and that you're like losing tension in that second pull, possibly third. Yeah. But, but of, of all of our levers that we can pull in this one, your, your, your quad hamstring, lower back, and a hip extension are all the biggest ones to pull. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're likely doing something to where you're losing tension within that, and then it's crashing, and it's, it's becoming progressively worse. Mm -hmm. so, so basically, backdooring that pull um, with overhead stability work to try to create as much time under tension on the posterior chain as possible is likely how I would address this. Makes sense. So I think kind of driving home our point for like today's episode is um, there can be a variety of different approaches to treatment, let alone exercise modification, um, program progressions or regressions, right? So that's why looking into the individual themselves and then matching, you know, whatever type of or level of a program or exercise you need to utilize for them, right? Um, whether or not, well, like we already said, biological age, training age, um, any past injuries, like those all have to be taken into account when creating these progressions, regressions, and rehab. Um, but then also looking into how you are going to use the, you know, the principle of specificity, uh, you need to make the exercise regression or progression match where they're weak or they're lacking at, right? Um, and even choosing appropriate set rep schemes is going to be huge here too. Yep. Like if you have a powerful athlete, having them go to sets of 20, 25 may or may not make sense. Whereas if you have somebody who's going to be more endurance-based, 
say a triathlete or somebody who runs 10 Ks all the time, it might make sense to go and have them execute things to try to get them fatigued just like they would in a race. Bingo. Exactly. Like you're not going to take, you know, like for example, a shot putter, you're not going to have them run a mile, right? You wouldn't do that at all. No. Um, but maybe you like, have them do a hundred yard dash. Yeah. Or yeah. a high jump or something that's going to be much more explosive. For yeah. That's two to three second type of uh, time domain. Exactly. So that's why I think, you know, as, as a developing physical therapist, one of the things you need to learn is how to match your exercise prescription into what the person needs. All right. You can't be throwing three sets of 10 at everybody, or you can't be using the same exercises every time. Now I'm going to get on my soapbox, but I think if you are going to work with athletes, you need to understand the demands of the sport. And then that will help you tailor your exercise prescription, rep sets, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Um, or, or even if you're the general public, and mm-hmm. somebody is trying to sell you something. Once again, look at it. Does it actually apply? Uh, you know, if you, if you want to be explosive, don't, don't go buy a bodybuilding program. If you want to be bigger, don't go buy Olympic weightlifting programming. Like, so the two things have to meet whatever you are trying to accomplish as an expression of your goal. Like it, it can't, and there are ways to blend this, but uh, that will obviously be on another episode. But ultimately, the thing that drives your results is going to be how specific it is to the mark. In a, in a general program, cannot accomplish something specific the same way that like a specific program can encompass something in general. So if you want to be mm-hmm. strong, get strong. You can't, some people can balance running a marathon and having a 500 pound back squat, but that's because of their training age and everything that they've been doing. Mm-hmm. But if your main goal is to snatch and clean and jerk, snatch and clean and jerk. Yep. hundred percent agree. Um, I think sometimes you see the people who are utilizing all the fancy tools like the earthquake bar, the tsunami bar, and they have them doing all of these these exercises, but then when you ask them, well, why, why are you having them do overhead walks? Oh, I just want them to be better overhead. Well, in what aspect do you want them to be better overhead? Is it a stability issue? Is it like a an activity capacity, like for holding an overhead position? Like, like why? And if they just said, well, well, it's just working. It's just working, right? Okay, like go, elaborate a little bit more on that. Well, if they're overhead and they have to maintain it for longer, well, with a snatch, your overhead, you catch, you stand up, you drop. So why are you having them like sometimes the the clinical decision making and the thought process, they, they need to be able to match. And if you can't explain it, then why are you doing it? You know what I mean? I've had yep. two students where they give an exercise and they have like half of the idea like made and it makes sense. They're like, yeah, I want to improve overhead stability. But then they can't complete the thought as to what aspect of the overhead stability that they actually want to improve. Does that make sense? Yeah. Novel and different isn't always better because sometimes it gets further away from the mark. Exactly. So just make it simple and make it specific. Exactly. And then the other thing is like exercise prescription and like choosing specific exercises. Like I actually heard a nightmare story um, last summer that the person that they were working with was choosing their exercises based off what they saw on Instagram. 
And this is out of college. It can be great, but also probably doesn't apply to you. Exactly. This terrified me. I was like, you got to be joking. Yep. Prescription without assessment is uh, not not a good model. No. No. But I've even ran into like PTs that are giving online programming without even assessing a person in person. Yeah. That's even more scary. Yeah. Oh, boy. No. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed today's discussion between Dave and I. Uh, we'll be going a little bit more into overload in the next episode and, you know, prog- well, progressive overload and progression. Um, but we will see you guys in the next episode. Have a good one, guys. See you soon.